Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sigievich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. Today, I'm pleased to introduce my guests, Eric Wu and Spencer Tyson. Eric is co-founder and CEO of Revere. Revere has pioneered the world's first rating system for venture capital funds. And prior to that, he was the head of institutional capital at AngelList. He also helped to start the emerging manager programs at Top Tier Capital and Northgate Capital. Spencer is currently the head of investment ratings at Revere, where he is responsible for fund underwriting and managing relationships with general partners. Prior to that, he was at Guggenheim and State Street. In today's conversation, we will discuss the information gap between LPs and GPs. And one of the interesting things um, for me in the last few months, just having a lot of industry conversations, has been how many of those conversations focus on topics such as valuation policies and seeing LPs really being very interested in understanding how GPs mark their portfolios, what's happening with every individual company. And of course, these are very fair questions to ask, especially given the market's changing landscape um, around private market trends. But what stuck with me is that these conversations go beyond understanding what managers do. And I think there's a lot of there's, there's just a lack of trust between limited partners and general partners today, specifically in venture capital. So this conversation couldn't possibly be more timely. And we'll, we'll talk about the information gap when it comes to VC fund selection, trends in emerging manager landscape, and how we can be more quantitative in a decision-making process in an asset class that has historically been very qualitative. Eric Spencer, pleasure to have you on the show. So let's start with the current landscape of emerging managers and some of the key issues that allocators face when underwriting these managers. Eric, you helped establish emerging manager programs at Top Tier Capital and Northgate. Tell us a bit um, about the history of emerging VC manager programs at various institutions and some of your takeaways from establishing these programs at Top Tier and Northgate. Great to be here, Olga, and um, thanks for the wonderful introduction. We're super excited to kind of share our insights. And a lot of this really is built upon the experience um, I had as a former allocator working with very sophisticated fund of funds and navigating this world, which honestly just changes every few years. And I think that's the part that we really need to embrace is the idea that the set of names, the network, the innovation trends, even the underwriting criteria that we would have used five or six years ago is going to be much less relevant in evaluating fund managers, especially emerging managers today, because it's dynamic. The venture ecosystem is just so fast changing because the talent and the operators who are becoming venture capitalists um, themselves are just changing in a demographic sense as well as an expertise sense. So in the 10 years that I've been in the fund of fund space, it's gone from a generation of just a handful of funds who were essentially thought of as, you know, a nice 
um, well-connected uh, angel investor, you know, think about Mike Maples at Floodgate or Ron Conway at SV Angel, super well-connected that did amazing things to help companies go and graduate into the larger brand name funds. And if you fast forward through the generations from, let's say, 2008, 2010 to 2012, 2015, emerging managers really became its own subcategory within the asset class, meaning first, the number of emerging managers reached a scale where we knew there was enough qualitative and quantitative ability to say who is a good manager and who is not a good manager, right? So that was the first important point. The second really important point is venture as an asset class became bifurcated in terms of a generalist investor and a specialist investor, right? So the concept of um, a solo GP being focused on something as specific as like climate tech or or hardware or, or real estate or prop tech, you know, five or six years ago when that was thought of as a very niche strategy that model didn't exist 10 years ago, but today obviously exists in spades because most of the funds by nature of their size, by nature of their background are very specialized. Um, so in summary, uh, it changes every few years and the underwriting because the GPs who are running these funds come from different backgrounds and are doing different strategies requires us to all stay very nimble in how we evaluate and invest in these fund managers. Yep. And this might be obvious to, to a lot of folks listening to the show, but um, what were some of the original reasons that Top Tier and Northgate were excited to add some of the emerging manager programs to their portfolio? And sort of how did they think about the decision? You know, pros, cons, I think you alluded a little bit to the challenges of evaluating, right? But, um, you know, give us some of the reasons that they were excited to start doing so. Well, it, at the end of the day, it's all about performance, right? And as you had more fund managers start small in, in this emerging manager category, um, generate amazing returns because generally they were investing earlier and they had smaller fund sizes, the alpha was um, too hard to ignore. So at an institutional level, working at a fund of funds, or of course, a lot of endowments have also participated in this category as well. The returns were such that you had to have a place or a part of your portfolio dedicated to, to this, cate this category. And I think the second thing too, is we were seeing a lot of these emerging fund manager as they experience success, as they move from an LP base that was, let's say, smaller individuals, family offices into institutional LPs, that they had the ability to raise larger funds. And by extension, this started to align much better with, you know, that LP check size, you know, thing that we we often talk about, which for a large allocator, maybe their minimum fund size, a minimum check size might be 10, 15, 20 million, and they can't invest in a small fund at that check size. So the combination of returns, the combination of that, along with the idea that these fund managers were graduating and raising larger funds, thereby enabling LPs that were more institutional to invest in them. That was what led to, uh, you know, sort of the success of these programs at, you know, top tier Northgate. Yep. And we are on our third fund now. So some some still would think of us as an emerging manager. And um, as you know, we have a program to back 
funds below 50 million. So we've worked with a number of emerging managers ourselves. And perhaps one more reason that I would add why um, it's an interesting part of the universe to spend time in is that this is where you see innovation, right? When you're launching your new fund, the vast majority of these investors are driven by their curiosity and um, and seeing that you know there, there is a gap in the market with what founders need in certain sectors, and they are excited to launch that investment solution. And um, and of course, every famous franchise at some point was Fund One, right? So if if you are an alligator who wants to be at the forefront of innovation venture capital itself, then um, you know you're much more likely to see that among emerging managers. Um, so Spencer. Give us uh, an update on the state of emerging managers in the C market today. Um, you know, give us an idea of the numbers, capital, um, by capital, type of funds, sectors, any of the regional trends, and um, and perhaps how's how have things been happening in the recent market correction? Yeah. So so thank you for having me. Um, happy to happy to be on as well. Revere essentially has a, a part of our business where we collect due diligence and, and share with, with client LPs. And so one of our new initiatives that we've been launching based off of all the, the information that we've been collecting is an upcoming benchmarking report. And so within that benchmarking report, we've surveyed about 223 funds um, spanning from 2007 all the way up to 2023. There's a pretty heavy concentration of the funds that we have um, that are that are about 85 percent between 2022 to 2016. Um, but based on preliminary reviews, we've we've actually been able to sort of identify a handful of trends in fund infrastructure um, that either sort of disprove or prove sort of previously held suspicions. Um, I I, I want to say first and foremost, one thing that that we were able to confirm is that funds with a female GP outperform funds without a female GP. Um, and so that, that diversity in gender is, is not just, you know, something that people do on the back burner or something for charity. It actually drives returns. Um, another thing that we found is that solo GPs in our data set have actually outperformed um, funds with multiple GPs. Um, we've also found career operators, um, and we define that as someone who has founded a company from inception to exit, outperform fund managers that come from an investing background, so previously managed a fund elsewhere. So when we look at sort of the infrastructure, we can kind of start to say, hey, you know what, these are, these are things that are, that, are, that are really standing out to us. And again, this is all preliminary data, but this is stuff that we're going to dive a little bit deeper into in our benchmarking report and sort of kind of get to the bottom of it. We also broke out the mean, median, and high gross MOICs of, of each of these funds. Um, so again, preliminary data, but we looked at funds one through three in this data set. And actually, a lot of the suspicions had been kind of confirmed. So when we look at the mean gross MOIC return of funds one, two, and three. And just to clarify, MOIC, of course, is the multiple ah. uninvested capital. 
Yes, multiple gross, yes. gross multiple on invested capital. Correct. Yes. And multiples are better to talk about than IRR because they're less sensitive to the timing of cash flows. Um, so yes, let's 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 continue. Absolutely, yeah. So looking at the mean of funds one, two, and three, it trends slightly downwards. So if we look at the mean gross MOIC of a fund one, of our entire data set of fund ones, it'll trend slightly downwards. However, when we look at the median, um, because mean can get skewed by outliers on either side. When we look at the median, there's almost a J curve in, in, in the average returns. So as a fund one, the median fund one will do fairly well. The median fund two will drop off slightly, but the median fund three, as you become more institutional, shoots up. Um, and so that's an interesting trend that we're looking to dive into a little bit more in the benchmarking report. And then most obviously, I think, is, is the high, the outliers. So obviously, in a fund one, you're going to have much higher highs, much higher outliers. Um, we suspect, because it's a smaller pool of capital that's being invested, these are oftentimes angel funds or pilot funds. And as the funds get larger, you're starting to see less high outliers. But again, as an LP, if I'm looking to invest in a new fund, the odds that I find the one that is an outlier are low. However, if I am looking to invest and generally feel safe about investing in emerging venture capital, um, I can take some solace in, hey, you know what, while I may not get an 18x multiple fund, it is going to trend on a median average basis in the right direction. Well, this is this is super interesting. Um, the expectation that funds three would probably deliver a better performance than funds one and two, um, and and certainly worth exploring more. So, so thank you for for sharing that. And um, but let's talk about benchmarking in general. You know, obviously, venture capital markets have been incredibly competitive, and um, and I think sometimes it's not obvious to people just how competitive they are. But um, most of the groups I talk to will add one or two new funds a year, and last year alone there were fourteen hundred new VC funds launched, and that was twenty five percent lower than the year before. So um, you know, at times I think about well, how do I become that one out of fourteen hundred? But if we actually to think about the other side of that equation. It's an incredibly difficult space for allocators to pick from. And of course, one of the key challenges there is benchmarking performance, which is more challenging in private markets in general, um, but specifically in venture capital. So, um, you know, Eric, let's let's talk a little bit about challenges of benchmarking performance in venture capital. What are the options today? What is everybody using? And um, and you know, what are some of the pros and cons of of the data and approaches we have today? Yeah, I think it starts with the data, and if you think about the asset class being so opaque in terms of the level of granularity, the level of transparency of funds reporting to LPs has just been very spotty, right? So I think, you know, we should set that that as context that historically it was just hard to get a lot of really good information. And the second thing around the data is, you know, the third party data providers um, out there um, have their own business models, they have their own set of relationships. So the sample set from which they're driving and deriving the benchmarking reports are quite limited. 
So I say that was the probably the biggest um, issue is just the limited data set from which you would um, broadcast right to LP. So if you had, let's say, less than 50 funds in any particular vintage year and say, well, look, you know, within this 50, you know, and you said 1400, right? So imagine if you pick 50 funds randomly and say, hey, I'm going to publish a benchmarking report off of 50 funds, and then it's going to be in the hands of allocators who are going to potentially use that as a sole driving decision maker. That's insane. I mean, we would never do that in any kind of rational, logical thought process, but yet it's happened, right? So um, where does that number 50 come from? Like, is that roughly with some of the big benchmark providers today? Is is that what they sometimes have per vintage? It, it's surely less than 100, right, in the venture capital category. And we've seen some, you know, where it's like 10 or 15, right? It, it goes back to, again, there's got to be higher scrutiny around um, how these benchmarks are produced and what data is going into it. And even let's say the number is 50, um, that might be 50 funds that have some are late stage and some are early stage, some are seed stage. So we know that performance is, is wildly different between a late stage venture fund and an early stage seed stage focused fund. So to mix them all together and have a single kind of classification of vintage year can also be very misleading, right? So um, it just comes back to us on the allocator side, on the LP side, asking these questions, demanding better integrity of the data, better, better higher volume of data, right? And again, that's part of really the mission for Revere is to bring that, that greater transparency by gathering more data and being much more analytical about that data. Yep. So we'll we'll get to what you're building um, at Revere in just a second, but um, let's also talk about um, systematic and data driven strategies. Um, since since you've been talking about data and opportunities around it, you helped to develop um, systematic and data driven strategies uh, while at AngelList. Tell us a little bit how they work in venture capital and what are some of your learnings from developing them. Pros and cons of data-driven versus, let's call it, fundamental approaches to fund investing in in the private markets. Yeah, it's 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 something that I think is the the age-old question: is do you try to rifle shot this asset class, or or do you take more of an index approach? And I think there's many many studies that says that venture capital, especially at the early stage, you need shots on goal. Um, right, because the skew of the returns to the uh, to the outliers is so dramatic that you need to have enough um, opportunities to potentially capture those outliers. So, when it comes down to data and using data to be systematic, I think it really sparks the imagination that, gosh, maybe there is an index-like approach. Now, if you use that word index, it means that number one, you have to have data to support how you construct the index. And number two, you have to have enough relationships to say that you can, on a broad-based approach, be able to capture this, this, this asset class in terms of exposure. So a lot of um, my work with AngelList um, and you know, closely with the data science team, because if you think of an AngelList, it's an amazing sandbox of relationships, and they've got all these amazing early-stage angel investors that were now raising their own funds. So we actually had the ingredients to, to put something together that looked like an, a, an index. So 
you know, without belaboring, you know, too much and getting into deep, deep, you know, deep dive on this, but we we found that there was absolutely strong attribution in an index approach using angelus relationships and data that that outperformed not only the median, you know, kind of venture capital benchmarks, but that had a greater outperformance um, compared to public markets. And really that's at the end of the day where we can level the playing field is to say, look, if you're tying up your money in venture capital, you absolutely have to outperform the public benchmarks by a premium, right? Because it's illiquid. And we found a lot of success in that messaging um, at AngelList. Excellent. So now let's uh, let's segue into what you are building at Revere. You've given us a little bit of an idea of some of the challenges of allocating to emerging managers um, around data available and um you know, tell us what you are building at Revere, how you are taking advantage of uh, perhaps, you know, what, what other players in the markets uh, have not done uh, with your approach, how you're different, and what is the service that you provide to both LPs and GPs? Yeah, so it really starts with, you know, the concept that I think over the last few years, there's been a tremendous trend around democratization of alternative assets and accessibility. And so, the mission of Revere is to promote transparency, right, in a quantitative approach to bring to allocators a set of tools, infrastructure, data, software that really enables them to make smart, informed decisions on how to invest in venture capital. So along those lines, we started with the concept of let's take all of this um, experience and track record uh, that the team here has built investing in venture and let's create a rating system because a rating system would then allow for kind of a common language, right? So instead of what has happened um, far too often, which is you have a coffee meeting, you meet a manager, you get along, you check out the pitch deck and it feels good, right? And you make an investment and you you hope and pray it turns out well. To, to us, that's not investing, right? That's 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 just a little bit of gambling and maybe a little bit of a form like, you know, I wanna support a specific mandate. So with a rating system, we start to equip allocators with the tools and the questions and answers to be able to systematically evaluate a large number of funds that don't have, you know, three or four funds worth of track record where you can actually point to Hey, they've been you know top quartile for the last three funds, right? Because that, as you mentioned, you're not going to know for many many years, especially if you're on a fund one, two, or three. Um, so that was really for us the important first step is to create this translation layer for GPs and LPs to communicate through a trusted third party, independent. Um, because again, we do not charge GPs. We're not a broker dealer, so we were very intentional about creating the right alignment of interest. And the second thing is once we had developed this system, it allowed us to really start to capture the data, right? And the data is, the, is ultimately the arbiter of driving investment decisions. So I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Obviously, Spencer um, can spend a lot of time talking about the categories and um, the questions and how we've like over the last year and a half, now that we've got, you know, 200 funds through this process, some very fascinating insights. 
Yeah, this is super exciting. And then, of course, if if we think about the types of people who start funds, right, actual emerging managers, um, you know, they tend to be a pretty charismatic bunch, right? So um, I can I can see how the appeal of um, you know sort of uh, having a fundamentals based approach might actually not um, you know not get you to the right place always. Um, so super excited to hear a little bit about um, some of the insights that you've seen through data, Spencer. So tell us a little bit about the results of the benchmarking report. Um, you know, if if any of it might be different than what people typically assume about emerging managers. Um, and specifically, let's talk about the types of metrics that you think are important that you can see having the data set that you have um, and from your previous experience at Guggenheim. Um, that are, might be very important in this process, which have historically not been captured by other benchmark providers. Yeah, so I mean, kind of kind of taking a step back, talking about the origin of, of the categories and how we collected data. Um, it was originally born from when Eric was running the emerging manager programs at Top Tier and Northgate. And it was sort of expanded upon um, based on my experience at Guggenheim. Um, so when I was at Guggenheim, I was the head of counterparty risk management, where we had 300 different funds that we traded with, um, with credit products with. Um, and on an annual basis, each one of them had to be audited. Um, SOC 1 had to be checked. Um, KYC had to be ran, fund evaluation, et cetera. And so... You know, I, I I talked to Eric and I said, you know, on a good year, how many how many funds does a, a an institutional fund of fund evaluate? And he said somewhere between forty and fifty. Um, we built that process to and scaled it to be able to to evaluate somewhere between two and three hundred on an annual basis. Um, and really, the the fundamentals of it really look at five major things. First, being what is the makeup of the team. What are the backgrounds? Um, the second being, where do you source your deals from? Um, obviously, deal flow is important. And so we need to know that the well is not going to dry up. Thirdly is value add. So in, in the private equity game, a lot of, especially at the early stages, a lot of investors will take board seats, will take lead roles. And so it's not just picking winners, it's helping make winners. And so what do you do to help make your companies win? And how do you standardize that? Fourth, obviously, is track record because we're not playing for fun. This is this is a game of return the money. Um, and then fifth is firm management. We're looking at the portfolio construction. We're looking at the branding. We're looking at co-investment opportunities, things like that, because there's been a phenomenon of super angels in the Silicon Valley. Um, and so what we want to do is identify who's a super angel versus who is trying to grow a scalable institutional fund. And so within those five categories, we have four subcategories each. And so I'll give an example. With sourcing, um, we'll look at qualitative aspects such as what are the deal flow channels that you bring in um, startups from? So what is your investable universe? Then what is your product? What is your process for whittling down that investable universe? So say you see a thousand deals on an annual basis. How do you qualify that to the deals that you take to the investment committee? Then once you've taken all those deals down and you say, hey, these are the 20 checks that I want to write this year, how do you win? And one interesting stat that we were able to come out with, because we've asked hundreds of funds the same questions, is we started the pattern match. 
Winning is one of those categories where fund managers, especially at the early stage, will say, I have access to whichever deals I would like to invest in. And it's really hard to disprove because while obviously the ones that they were able to win allocation in are on the cap table, we don't know and or trust that they didn't, they're there reporting all the ones that they did not win allocation in. So one thing that we have been able to identify, which is sort of a unique data point to Revere, is what is your ability to stay on target with your portfolio construction model? The logic behind that is, okay, well, if everybody can win in every deal, how sharp are your elbows as you become more institutional? So when we look at portfolio construction models of each funds, they will say something to this, the, the effect of, if I invest this size check in this many companies or secure this much ownership in this many companies, if the traditional 80-20 power law of VC being 80% of your companies will fail, 20% will succeed, if that falls on my portfolio, I can project out somewhere between a 3 to 5x MOIC return. Well, if I look at your schedule of investments and in your portfolio construction, you say you need to be writing $500,000 checks or owning 5% of each company at every round. I'm looking at that portfolio. If I'm looking at your schedule of investments and you're coming in far below those numbers, it's reasonable to assume that your portfolio construction model is now broken and that projected three to five X return is no longer going to stick. And so by looking at these different data points, by pattern matching what everybody says versus what some of the differentiated funds are doing, we can identify quantitative metrics that really sort of pop off the page and say, okay, yeah, this person can access whatever deal, but how much does the founder actually want them in the deal? Well, you can tell by the check size they were able to write or the ownership they were able to secure. Um, so give us maybe a couple more examples around things like value add or sourcing, um, because, you know, very often people like for sourcing, people would reference specific networks. Let's say they used to work at company X. Now, you know, lots of people are leaving starting companies. Um, so how do you think, how would that type of uh, sourcing strategy score in your framework? So sourcing, something that's qualitative and, and, and you can't necessarily quantify sourcing, right? So we, we look at it from a qualitative standpoint, but with all of our qualitative metrics, we look at it from sort of a milestone-based or a hurdle-based um, performance review. And when I say that, I mean, again, hearing 200 plus funds talk about where they source their deals from. Most everybody will source from the popular demo days, from the popular accelerators, and from their immediate network. What differentiates funds is when they start to say, hey, I have this size network. It might be dozens of scouts that only send deals to me or venture partners that only send deals to me. It might be a proprietary angel network that I have cultivated myself. Um, there are a lot of funds that, that have either started their own accelerators or angel networks. And they say, I will invest in the best deals that come out of that. And we are investing based off of the rofer that we're getting from the angel investment or from the accelerator. There's, there are some funds that are tapped into universities that other funds cannot access. And so when we look at the sourcing capabilities, we're saying essentially, are you fishing from the same well that everybody's fishing from? How is your coverage so if, you, if you're covering various regions or sectors, do you have enough subject matter expertise on your team or within your bench to actually cover it? 
So from a sourcing standpoint, we look at it milestone-based or hurdle-based. And from a value-add perspective, we essentially are evaluating four major categories. So one, how are you at securing follow-on capital for your investments? It's great for your founders because they know they have potential downstream investors. It's great for you because you know you have liquidity downstream. So how many companies can you give us case studies or can you give us an aggregate amount of follow-on capital that you have secured for your portfolio companies? We look at it with, from the same perspective with pilot customers or revenue generated. Obviously, we're investing in businesses and the best thing for a business is to generate revenue and turn a profit. So can you help these founders on a systematic basis secure pilot customers? Do you have that type of bench? Do you have that type of Rolodex? Do you have that type of network? And is it connected? Now, moving off of that is community. So who is talking about and supporting your fund that is not obligated to? Now, this can be done via platform, this can be done via angel network, this can be done via venture partner network, whatever the case may be, community of people that you can, on a systematic basis, not necessarily just, hey, back in my mind, let me send this person a text, but on a systematic basis, how can I organize my community of founders against my community of people who can add value to them? And lastly, we think about go-to-market tactics. So within growth levers, you're looking at how many times have you helped a company expand? How many, help, how many times have you helped them find product market fit? And, and one of the, the first things that you do when you raise capital is you have to hire talent. And so how do you help your portfolio companies attract the top level talent? So looking at how many people you've hired, are they entry level engineers? Are they senior executives? How do you help build the infrastructure of your firm? Within value add, we really don't want to hear sort of the one story of, hey, this is the one time I was valuable. Somebody called me at 12 o'clock at night or their dog was drowning and I saved him and they gave me extra allocation. We're looking for, hey, you know what? I have this internal operation. I have this partnership set up with an HR company. I have a systematic way that alleviates key person risk so that the fund can continue to grow and scale as you secure more board seats and as more and more companies are asking for different things. Yep. And I can see how this could be very valuable to allocators who perhaps are, you know, not spending every second of their time in our world, right? And um, you know, if let's say they meet a manager who says, well, you know, I hunt in like in the alumni base of, of this university, right? But if all of a sudden 10,000 people, you know, also focus on, on that network, um, do you have any interesting anecdotes of like the most frequently cited, you know, network or something like that? And just like, just the scale, like, is there 10,000 managers who say that like, you know, we hunt in like MIT network or something like that? Yeah, I, you know, just to jump in here, um, I think, there's a lot of fund managers who like to throw like big numbers, right? Like the top of the funnel, right? So we get we get this all the time, right? That there's a headline number around, look at how many deals I see and I only invest in, you know, 0.001%, right? So that is um, something for us that we kind of obsess about. We're just like, well, that, that, that doesn't mean you're a good investor just because you have a very big top of the funnels, what you do to get to the ones that are at the bottom. So in that category of sourcing, this is generally where we become, you know, very, you know, very harsh, you know, ask a lot of very detailed questions that as Spencer mentioned, I mean, some of it is just process orientation, right? Because a lot of people 
cannot fully justify and back up what gets them from stage one, stage two, stage three. Like some people just literally say it's a, you know, it's just my gut instinct. Right. And that's good. It's not good enough. Right. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not betting on gut instinct. We're betting on repeatability. So that's just one example of where we take a very granular approach um, where we insist on data process um, and repeatability. Yeah. Another thing that, that, that we like to look at is when we look at the, the makeup of the team, we, we really want to make sure that the experience is aligned. And so two categories that, that stand out to me are, as we look at the team, we look at the operating background and the investing background of the GPs. Now, some are career operators, some are career investors, sometimes there's a blend. But with investors specifically, we're looking at, do you have experience investing on the thesis that you're raising capital under? Um, it's one thing to be, you know, a, a, a very well-decorated investor at the growth stage coming off of a Sand Hill firm versus now you're starting your own fund and you may have a more sector-focused thesis. It may be a lot earlier stage. It's a completely different game now that you don't have that name behind your wall. So how do I know that you actually have experience navigating this space? Same thing for operators. I... I, I, I see a lot of operators who may have experience as an early employee at a company. They may have worked at a tech company that may no longer be private, whatever the case may be. But again, if you're investing in early stage, let's call it fintech, have you worked at an early stage fintech company? Have you founded a fintech early stage company? Have you taken them? Have you walked the same steps that you expect the founders in your portfolio to walk? And so that also helps us. And again, I, I shared the stat earlier how um, those who have exited companies actually outperform those who have been career investors. That's the type of interesting insights that we can draw from the data of saying, okay, well, now that we know this, let's dive in further. And this is something I'm interested in and in, in, in kind of really digging into in the benchmarking report of what is it that 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 gives operators that experience that helps them outperform those who are more more you know geared to be check writers? Yep. And of course, the other side of this argument where somebody might say, well, perhaps you're pattern matching too much, right? Because, you know, for example, there are certain areas of the financial services industry that I know well. And so every deal I would see from those areas, I would never invest in. I just know too much how hard it is to <laughs> commercialize it there, right? Um, and so I think, you know, somebody on the other side of that argument might just say that pattern matching too much might actually lead you in the wrong direction. And which um, which leads me to the next topic that ultimately it's a balance of quantitative and qualitative factors. And to me, it seems that the data you're providing helps managers to just say, you know, it seems to you that your story is very differentiated, but 150 other managers have absolutely the same narrative, right? And so you need to think deeper about what is it that allows you to see the best deals, get the best allocation. And then for LPs as well, right? Most of them probably don't spend that much time looking at smaller funds. And so it's just helpful for them to get a sense of like, what is a differentiated story or not? But ultimately, comes 
it comes down at some point to, to the qualitative factors. So Eric, what are some of your reflections? I know we talked in the past about, you know, LP behavior in the selection process. What is, how, how would you recommend for, you know, for folks to find the right balance of qualitative, quantitative decision-making factors? Yeah, I think the, the, the way you framed it is, is spot on. And what we're doing at Revere is we're bridging the gap, right? So um, we're, we're very, very clear when we talk to both sides of, of, the, of the table, so to speak, that, you know, there's, there's no magic wand. Right. It's not just because Revere gave you a great rating. And so everyone should rush out and invest in your fund. That's not what it's intended to do. What we're trying to say is there's a gap of information. There's a gap of an understanding and there's a gap in terms of like, how do we actually just do the underwriting? So that's what we provide. The balance of quantitative and qualitative is to help people bridge the gap of an information. What they do with our information is really simply, a you know, we're the starting point, right? We're giving them information and we're giving them a framework to allow them to say, well, look, if there's 10 funds that I'm evaluating, let's say I read all the Revere reports on the 10 funds, I should clearly come out of that exercise knowing which are the two or three for me to spend more time on, right? Versus what happens today is like all 10 sound, as you said, amazing, differentiated, high energy. Um, and, you know, again, paint such a wonderful picture in terms of why all of them would be compelling opportunities, right? And of course, the LP can't invest in all 10. And that's really where it comes down to the value we provide is that at the end of the day, we know capital is scarce. We know that people are going to be relatively conservative. They're only doing potentially one or two new relationships a year. And so how can we help them drill down into the handful that they really should be spending time with. And is there anything else that I should have asked you about the insights that you've seen on your platform, the way you work with managers, anything else that's that's important to highlight about, um, about Revere and, and what's differentiated about you? Yeah, I think one thing, and I'll kind of direct this to, to my colleague, Spencer, I think there is in this generation, we talked at the beginning, right, where every wave every generation of emerging manager um, is a little bit different. And I think what excites us is about this idea of diversity of people who are coming from non-traditional backgrounds. And those things are what is resonating with founders. So, um, so again, I'll let kind of my colleague Spencer speak to this. This is very important. We're seeing a lot of capital um, earmarked and budgeted to go after this category because people recognize that opportunity. Yeah, um, I, I I think it's 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 pretty well known at this point that diverse teams, um, from a company and an investment perspective, outperform. And so, as you start to see population shifts, especially in the states, where you're starting to see more groups that have been historically looked at as minorities start to grow in numbers. You're seeing the same representation in portfolio companies. And these portfolio companies are often saving a spot on their cap table for somebody who comes from a similar background because they're going to understand the highs and lows, the ups and downs that they're going to have, not just as a founder, but as a person in this space, as a human being in this space. And so I'm really excited to see a lot of non-traditional diverse fund managers start to pop up, um, especially in this space. And that's why I love this benchmarking report, 
because it gives us an opportunity to say, look, again, just like I mentioned earlier, where I say funds with a female GP outperform, this isn't a charity. This diversity of opinion and diversity of experience really is helpful to boosting revenues, to boosting profitability, and to boosting returns. And so I actually work with a handful of different groups on the LP side, um, one of them being IDAC, Investment Diversity Advisory Council, that is very aware of that. And so they are starting to say, hey, look, this is no longer something where we're just, we just want to support our community or we just want to feel good or we just want to hit sort of these diversity pledges. We're looking to make money. And so how do we get organized about finding these fund managers who come from non-traditional backgrounds and supporting them? And so that's something that I'm really, really proud to be a part of. I'm, I'm really, really appreciative that, that Chris and Eric at Revere let me sort of tread that path and, and blaze that trail. Um, and I mean, even at even at Revere, right, we we are a very, very diverse team. We we walk that walk, we talk that talk. So it's 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 really refreshing for me to to kind of see those differences of opinions. And it's 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 awesome for me to be able to sort of bolster and highlight the success of it. Yeah, uh, for sure. And one of the most exciting things about emerging managers and allocating capital in this space is that um, there is a lot more innovation. There are different types of talent and views. And so it's, it's just great to be able to have data on a lot of these things because um, that's that's an important way that people can feel more confident in the decisions they're making and allocate capital appropriately. Um, well, super excited with your building. And uh, let's, let's finish on something personal. Um, the summer is coming up what are you looking forward to yeah happy to to start so um you know as a startup founder you know it's it's hard to find time for 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 travel right personal travel so i've got um a big family trip coming up to paris so excited it's my one you know it's, it's on my wife's bucket list but bring the whole family um so again going back to you know taking time and space right to to decompress but also being able to travel and experience culture and people um, and food and art that is um, so different than what we kind of see here day to day in Silicon Valley. So that's kind of the big trip and, and very much looking forward to um, kind of taking off that that founder hat and experience some, some time with family. That's awesome. Spencer, how about you? Uh, I'm the same, um, you know, being able to to be with family. Um, so my, my family is kind of spread across the states. Um, I got some sisters in New York. Uh, my parents are in Arizona. My brother's in, in Los Angeles. And so being able to take the time to see them because being in the Bay Area and working in the, the VC and tech environment, um, it can get a little transactional, right? You're going to two to three networking events every week and you know, everybody, you know, you're, you're making great friends in the industry, but there's also a lot of people who you're like, hey, you know what, this is this is somebody I've got to do business with and I've got to put on a face and this and the other. And so being able to go around family for me is very, very refreshing, especially not being from the Bay Area. Um, it gives me that recharge. It gives me that motivation. It, it reminds me of my why. It reminds me of like why I, why I do things. And I also take the summer to to travel to places that are 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 sort of up and coming um you know uh, the, over the past year i've gone to like lafayette louisiana atlanta georgia tulsa oklahoma places that you wouldn't necessarily think are you know 
you know, you're, you may think whatever you think in terms of like a vacation destination or an ecosystem, but, but these are the places where you sort of find those hidden gems and you start to say like, Hey, you know what, this is a, this is a town to keep my eye on. This is a town to, these are relationships. These are good people that I'm meeting out here. Um, and this summer sort of gives me that opportunity to go, go out and see that. Well, that's wonderful. We are sufficiently intrigued. I do want to read some of your travel blogs from these destinations. And um, and of course, Eric, have a, have the best time in Paris as well. Um, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for your insights in the industry and really, really excited about seeing more companies bring data to what has historically been pretty qualitatively driven, um, but I think will make us stronger as an industry. Good to see you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.